Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. The annual cost of opioid abuse, addiction, and overdoses in Ohio is estimated to be between $6.6 and $8.8 billion, according to Ohio State researchers. Ohio has the third highest overdose rate in the country. Unintentional drug overdoses caused the deaths of over 4,000 people in Ohio in 2016. As the race for governor in Ohio gets underway, candidates are laying out their plans to address the crisis. Here to share her ideas and solutions to the opioid epidemic in Ohio is Dayton mayor and gubernatorial candidate, Nan Whaley. So Nan, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Great to be on your show today. Okay. So let's start with the impact the opioid epidemic has had on your community. Can you kind of outline that for us? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, it's pit the state of Ohio, I think, pretty dramatically. And we had, you know, over 4,000 accidental overdose deaths in, um, in Ohio last year. Uh, of the top 10 cities in the country that are marred by the epidemic, three are in Ohio and one is Dayton. Uh, we started seeing this issue actually um, probably like in 11 or 12, if, if I'm honest. I had um, suburban city councilmen uh, would come to me and say, hey, what are you going to do about um, heroin and, and the heroin issue in our community? And it was odd, you know, because we've had other sorts of drug epidemics in our community in the past. Uh, for example, uh, because where Dayton sits in the state on I-70 and I-75, we're really great at logistics, both legal and illegal. Sure. And then coupled with how this epidemic moved from the Ohio River towns, and Dayton is a, a town that um, a lot of the Ohio River cities visit regularly and feel very comfortable in, I think those two pieces, along with um, just just the pretty robust movement because of the Air Force Base and people moving in and out of our community really regularly, I think that we created a perfect storm for us to be hit um, with the with the opioid epidemic, uh, and so I remember that that council person from uh, you know barely, a city barely in our county asking me this, and I said, well, this is interesting, uh, and we just started to see uh, an incredible 
um, swelling of people being addicted to prescription pain relievers and then to heroin and now fentanyl and carfentanil in our community. Uh, so we've had to be very aggressive on it. I was elected in uh, as mayor in 2013, and pretty much this is something that I've been working on every single day in Dayton. What more can we do? How can we align resources? How can we get everyone at the table? Uh, what's 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 our action as a community? And it has, uh, uh, particularly in the first half of this year, you know, just overloaded uh, our community resources because of of the death rates that happened in the first half of this year, particularly because of fentanyl and carfentanil being so so very, very deadly so quickly. Uh, and so we've been working aggressively on it. And I think, you know, the silver lining is we probably have some of the best practices that I know people across the country are looking to Dayton uh, on those issues. And then, um, you know, my hope is that long term we have a system to deal with what is real, the real issue and the issue of addiction in our community. So we have a system of both um, being able to support and deal with uh, those that become addicted and then also um, folks that have, I think, uh, dual diagnosed with mental health uh, issues. And I think those are the two things that are coupling that are really happening uh, that long term maybe we can have a real system that, that helps people before we get to this stage uh, in the future. Sure. So, as you mentioned earlier, our state is one of the hardest hit by the opioid epidemic. Alaska, Florida, Maryland, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Arizona have all declared the opioid epidemic a state of emergency. When asked last year, Governor Kasich elected not to declare a state of emergency over the epidemic. Do you think that that was the right decision? Would you have handled it different? As, as governor? I certainly would. Uh, you know, we were one of the first cities, if not the first city in the state, to declare a state of emergency back in 2014, so in my first year as mayor. What that does is it allows you to um, have sources of opportunity to deal with the epidemic in ways that that you can't deal with it if you don't declare an emergency. Give us examples of that. Uh, well, in 2014, for example, we wanted to make sure that we were being able to reach those afflicted, afflicted with this issue. And we saw in, for example, Scott County, Indiana, um, uh, needles that were being used so often that a hep hepatitis C outbreak had happened in this very small county. And that was terrifying to us when we saw the number of deaths we were seeing. Uh, we wanted to see how we could really get to those addicted. and so. Uh, the declaration of emergency allowed us to do what we call harm reduction. We now have three sites across the city uh, where folks that are um, uh, are afflicted with this with this disorder can go in um, and and receive uh, receive clean needles and transfer their old ones. So it also helps keep dirty needles off of our street, which is also an issue for cities. Uh, um, Today we have just this year um, dispensed over 100,000 needles in the city of Dayton, uh, most from a lot of the same people. Honestly, this is a place where folks feel like they can uh, be feel trust. And really, that's an opportunity for us to open the door so we have a relationship where if someone feels like they have nowhere else to turn, that they, ha they have this place. And, and that way, when they're ready for treatment, we can get them into treatment very quickly. Uh, so that's been an example. Uh, further, declaring an emergency helps you with uh, the administration of Narcan. You know, we were one of the first cities for our police to administer Narcan, uh, which is the life-saving drug that 
is on a lot of Ohio, a lot of cities now. I think are using are using it, and I think that's been really helpful. It's um, shocking for any cities that would elect not to use it. It is. It was surprising, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, for it would be the equivalent of someone who, of one of the the two things that um, uh, ambulances in Dayton uh, deal with uh, today are people that are in insulin shock over diabetes and um, and um, are, you know, overdosed from heroin. And so to go in and say, well, I'm sorry, you ate too much sugar today uh, because we do have an addiction to sugar issue, so I'm not going to give you your insulin is, would be the equivalent of that. Um, so, uh, and it would also be against what, you know, police and fire are, do, are there to do, which is to help people in, in real need. And so we've seen that. Our, our fire department, I have to tell you this, they get, you know, anytime there's been all this discussion about uh, naloxone and who's carrying naloxone, uh, my, my fire chief likes to point out that they've been carrying naloxone since like 1979 on the ambulance and fire trucks of Dayton. Wow. But, and I think people don't really realize that because it's, of course, you know, when we've, it's not like heroin has never been around. There has been this issue. And so ambulance and uh, firefight, so he's always making that point about it when people act like it's a really big deal. It's always been something that's been on the ambulances for issues. Now, the rate we're using it is a lot more uh, uh, these these days. Uh, and, you know, those kind of efforts to declare an emergency, I think, are, are helpful for the city. Finally, I'll say, look, the first step in admitting that you have a problem is saying you have a problem. And so just the declaration of emergency is really important to take, I think, um, a real good look in the face of what is happening in your community or your state. So then you can marshal the resources that are needed to really deal with it like the emergency it is. And I can't underscore how important that is for the state. Uh, you know, this state declared a state of emergency on swine flu. You know, 52 Ohioans died in 2009, 2010 on swine flu. We've had 4,505 Ohioans die just last year from accidental overdose. If this is not an emergency, I don't know what is. What role would the operations center play in this whole thing? Because I understand you declared a state of emergency, and then that opens up the possibility of utilizing your command center. So right. how's that all work? We, we, for us, it was really uh, being able to let public health use their, their, their systems and protocols to move as quickly as possible on a public health emergency. For the state, um, it would definitely, I think, marshal the resources of all of the police and fire services and really put, again, attention on this is an emergency and we need to do whatever we can uh, to make sure that, that we have the opportunity to, to um, really go after this epidemic as quickly as possible. And I think that really the, um, the operations center shows how fast you need to work. And I think that's the other point for it. The other thing it'll help is it really, in the state, it will help like bring all cabinet members together and then they know that's a top priority too. So declaring an emergency for the city of Dayton, for the state of Ohio, shows that this is our top priority. This is what we have to think about all the time. Uh, because if we can't get this right, there's very little we can continue to keep on doing. And so um, that's, I think, I think what the state could do to be helpful. I think the state's concerned about that because of, you know, the, 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 
The other thing that declaring an emergency does um, on the state level could also affect funding. And the state has been pretty notorious about cuts to local communities funding. Uh, you know, when you're talking about cities that have had, you know, 200% increase in ambulance runs, um, some of the busiest, you know, times on critical services, you know, the state's really not interested in reimbursing these communities, and these communities are really on their own. I'll give an example just today. Um, the state auditor declared four counties in southern Ohio on the verge of financial distress. It has really everything to do with the opioid crisis and the opioid epidemic. Because of the, the, the call on their resources to deal with life-threatening issues, that really happens on the front lines in local government and counties, and the state's really not interested in helping them along. And that's really the frustration, I think, that we have when the state doesn't declare an emergency and doesn't, doesn't provide those, those opportunities to really partner with local communities. As an aside, what happens if they can't dig themselves out of the financial distress that they're in? That's a real, a real challenge. You know, there's 28 cities across the state that have already been declared in financial distress. They typically are low-income communities that the state hasn't been paying attention to. It's an issue we talk about. As mayor, it's something I'm passionate about. Um, and the state really has just kicked the can. They haven't, they, you know, they basically yell at the folks for being poor. And I think that's not really the answer. Um, it's, really, it's really about what kind of resources are we giving to local communities to deal with the front lines of issues, not only like opioid epidemics, but all kinds. Think of when you have an emergency, you call your city or, or your township. You know, that's who you're calling for that. And, sure. and really you're seeing just a complete lack of resources on those front lines, both from the cuts from the state, but also because of the, the stress of the epidemic in communities. Um, I was over in eastern Ohio in Monroe County, um, which is, you know, up, up against the West Virginia border, and they had um, 22 seats that were open this November for election that no one ran. And I believe the reason why is because they don't want to tell their family members and their friends that there are no resources no one ran for office. Wow. That's what's happening in local communities across our state, and the state's paying little to no attention about that. So let's move along. Mm -hmm. Your community, along with numerous others in the state, have filed a lawsuit against the drug companies to hold them accountable for the opioid epidemic. So why should the drug manufacturers be held accountable for the crisis when it's doctors overprescribing that got us into this mess? So a couple of things. One of the key parts of the uh, the lawsuit first is uh, the Dayton the Dayton lawsuit sues manufacturers, distributors, and some doctors that were marketing false uh, falsely to other doctors. So there are some doctors in our lawsuit, and I think most of the cities uh, across the state their lawsuit is more broad than than Dewine's lawsuit because of that. We want to hold everyone accountable that really started this epidemic. What they did at the very beginning of this is the manufacturers picked a few doctors to have them go out and tell other doctors that it wasn't addictive. And that's the real key part mm -hmm. of that mindset change for doctors. Oh, we've changed these pills, they're suddenly now not addictive. And that was the big lie that the yeah. manufacturers and distributors showed. And really they put profits over people in a way, I mean, I mean frankly, we're killing people. Now, um, we've done, um, I think what the governor has done that has been good this past year is, you know, the ORS rule, ruling to really tighten uh, prescription um, 
uh, pain relievers and put that they're all in the system. And I've heard from folks that work in the OR system that the for, database for that database so for both, pharmacy. Thank yeah, you, Greg. Both pharmacists as well as doctors have to report and look up before they fill a prescription or write a prescription, look up to double check that other doctors haven't prescribed opioids. And that has been a big help. I've heard that across my city from doctors of like, look, the other thing that doctors have said is you can tell very clearly who the bad actors are, which of the doctors are bad actors. And so one of the keys for the governor's office to do is to be aggressive as possible with the bad actors that are being shown through that system. So, you know, if other doctors know, everyone knows, and it's pretty easy for, I think, the, the state to figure it out through the OR system. But for the manufacturing and for the, the drug companies and why we particularly went after them, the big lie that they told to get people addicted to this, we think was an issue for them to be more interested in their profits rather than people. And, you know, when when we realized what was happening, and we being the communities realized, they tightened the prescription drugs, which they have, but now you suddenly have thousands of people addicted. And that is what the cost, the cost to our communities for treatment, for the front lines, for, you know, five years sometimes as long for folks to, you know, to receive treatment to, to be able to live a somewhat normal life after this. The changed lives of people that have been struggling through this, they should pay for that. And taxpayers really shouldn't be holding the bag for something they did. So you proposed a tax on each prescription filled for opioids mm -hmm. to help battle the epidemic. So tell us a little bit about that proposed program. Very innovative, very unique. Um, yeah. I applaud you for coming up Thank with that. Thank you. Well, I have to tell you, I talked to Senator Manchin in West Virginia, who's been a leader on this. And I, I got the idea from Senator Manchin, went to see him about the federal government declaring a state of emergency. And so I went and visited DC and tried to get folks to say, what can we do to get them to declare an emergency as well? So Greg, I've been on the they trail as, they as the same as, as you have. Mm -hmm. And Senator Manchin brought this idea up of this per dose surcharge. Of, um, um, across the federal government. He said, look, you know, the same idea. Taxpayers shouldn't be having to pay for this. Manufacturers uh, and distributors should be the ones that pay. And, you know, we need a sustainable funding source because we know to deal with this epidemic is going to take a long time. It is not going to be, they, they created havoc nearly overnight, but the cleanup for our communities and our state is going to take a very long time. And so I thought that was a very innovative idea. And so my team started looking at it and saying, okay, if we did a nickel per dose surcharge on every uh, prescription pain reliever that is prescribed, how much would that generate? And you know, what would that, what could we do with that? Well, it generates in the state of Ohio around $32 million right now. Hopefully it will go down, right? Because mm -hmm. we want less people per, sure. uh, uh, prescribing. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is a sustainable funding source that um, could really help uh, communities on the front lines deal with uh, psychiatric beds in the hospitals and, ha and, uh, and have a sustainable funding source for those that have, have been afflicted with this disorder. Um, uh, some folks have said to me, well, you're just taxing the user on it. I disagree. Like, there are, there are ways that the government can hold uh, and regulate companies as they should. They do that with, um, you know, uh, people that sell gas. You know you can't gouge on gas. We do it, for example, a weird, another weird example, on salt, you know, for our streets. Is it snowing in Akron today? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you shouldn't be able to gouge. You have a price. They're making millions, if not billions of dollars of profit to get people addicted. Billions. They can't 
they can afford the nickel per dose surcharge the manufacturers should pay to help us clean up this mess. Nearly 500,000 low-income Ohio adults, most of them uninsured, received mental health and addiction services under the state's hard-fought Medicaid expansion plan. Should we keep Medicaid expansion? Absolutely, especially in our communities where we see such, such an issue with the opioid epidemic. Um, for us, it's the, it's the key way that our folks receive any sort of services. Uh, it, is the, it is the basis for the whole system. And we're finally getting to a place where we're able to have systems in place to, to be able to, to deal with, with this epidemic and this, this, uh, this issue and this emergency across our communities. So to take Medicaid expansion is just basically to take the whole rug out from underneath it that we're all standing on and building off of. Uh, it is the uh, thing that Governor Kasich has done right, uh, and it's been disappointing to see um, people like Senator Portman, who you know, has been an advocate on these issues around opioid epidemics, not be for Medicaid expansion considering, uh, or protecting, protection of Medicaid considering what it would do to our communities. Sure. So what's your position on marijuana legalization? Some people call that a gateway drug. What's your position? Look, I think the gateway drug to heroin has been prescription pain relievers. Uh, it's been pretty clear through ORS and through through the database, you know, um, that that's that's the dr gateway drug. Um, I think there's lots more. Um, um, there hasn't been enough best practice research to really know what marijuana is or isn't, and I don't want to keep on making the same mistake over and over again. Uh, so I think that you know. I think it would be really important for us to really have some really good research about um, what happens when people use marijuana, what are the long-term effects, if any. Um, certainly, um, inhaling anything into your lungs, we know is not, from past history, is not a good thing. Um, but I, I think that a lot of times marijuana has been... Um, um, I think falsely blamed as something that once you do it, then you become addicted and these are the other things. And I think, I think that what we've seen is, you know, um, the gateway we've seen to heroin is actually prescription pain relievers. Some of the interesting research that's just starting to emerge now seems to suggest that it may be a nice alternative for pain relief. Right. Pretty and, effective. Right. And we can see that. I mean, I think we'd like to see some more of that. I'm just, uh, you know, considering how we got into this epidemic from quick research because people wanted to make money really fast. I want us to be thoughtful in the process. And I think that that's really important. I do not consider it a gateway drug in any sense of the, the word, but I want us to make sure that we're not, you know, putting this into the hands of young people, making sure that we have a really good system in place. Uh, I think the medical marijuana law is considered, except this past week when they had people that the, mm. the whole system. You had a drug dealer that kind of came into play there yeah. somehow. I don't know how that yeah, happened. Yeah, the, the crony capitalism of Columbus happened again. Hmm. But I think that, you know. It was a bit of an editorial, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's my job right now. So <laughs> uh, it is true. I mean, you just see it, you know, oh, uh, the people that were like awarding the contracts were from Arizona and Illinois and everybody from Arizona and Illinois happened to get the contracts. I mean, it is shady. Uh, so I think that, that that puts this whole part into question. Before that, I would have definitely said that this system of, you know, being thoughtful about medical marijuana and putting it in place and seeing what happens and responding through this process, I thought was a good one, a good step for us. And I definitely think that 
uh, we have to think of different ways to deal with pain. And I want us to get even further away than just thinking if I take this pill or if I smoke this, that suddenly my pain will go away. Because what we really know about pain is a lot of work done in physical therapy and how we take care of ourselves uh, can really deal with pain more effectively than any drug can give you. As governor, how do you plan to empower employers to help employees with substance use disorder to seek treatment while they're employed? This is a really big deal, right? We also know that, seven, at least in my county that did a study, 70% of the people that died from accidental overdose were employed at the time. So I want to make the point, because I think this is a real misunderstanding, that people say if we just create jobs, we'll suddenly solve the opioid epidemic. That is a misnomer. And most people that are contractors or um, working in the trades know this, because I talked to um, you know, uh, business agents for iron workers and sheet metal workers, and whenever they hear that, they say, look, we're dealing with this really significantly right now. Um, and I think there's, there are some good practices that are happening. If we did, did some digging and had some real honest conversations with the building trades about what they're doing to, to, do with, to work this, because, you know, one of the key parts for building trades is they offer really, their, their value add is a strong workforce that is drug free. Yeah. And so... Um, and to get many of their jobs, they have to certify that, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. And so what they've been doing to help their members get through this, I think are some really great best practices that could be taken across the entire spectrum of employment. Uh, because th th I've, I've, those are the most honest conversations I'm having about this issue when we're saying, okay, what, what should we do? Uh, because look, you take someone's job away and they're still addicted, you're taking away the support around them you know, how do we make sure that they have the support they need to get to the other side? At the same time, I recognize employers need to have a drug-free workforce in some cases, especially when dealing with heavy machinery or higher, you know, on top of steel, you know, other people's lives are at, at, um, at risk as well. So this is a balance, and I think that, I honestly think some of the work that the building trade's doing is some of the best in the country. So a follow-on question regarding employers once again. What would you do as governor to incent employers to hire employees in recovery? I think we've done a lot of this uh, with ex-offender reentry as well. I think there is some, uh, or we call returning citizens in the in the um, city of Dayton and other city communities have done this. And I think there's definite opportunities for for taking that model and working it in the recovery model as well. Um, and I think, look, I think that. Um, we're going to have to do that as a state. Uh, not only is it good for those that are in, in, um, in, in recovery, but it's just a function of the amount of workers we have too. And so if we don't, um, as an employment base, start working in, in, and giving people help to that, I think that we won't have the workforce we need. So there's a two-sided two piece on it. Uh, so I think there's definitely models that could be put in place and opportunities that we've done. Uh, that could be, could be easily replicated for the opioid epidemic. Well, Nan, it's been a delight. What? I've enjoyed talking to you, Greg. Great questions, and thanks for all the great work you do. Thank you. What, uh, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic here in Ohio and what you would do as governor? So I just would encourage everyone, I think the biggest, the biggest issue uh, on, this, on this epidemic is taking um, the silence away from it. Uh, you know, we need to share our stories, and um, people need to share their stories of 
uh, family members and friends and come out of the shadows on it. The only way you can start really dealing with the problem as a community, as a state, is to, is to be honest about the problem. And that's going to require bravery from family members and friends and even um, those in recovery themselves about sharing their story. Uh, we need to make, make sure that people know that this is everywhere and it's not just, you know, something that's never going to happen to your family or to your community. And I think that's the most important thing because when people see faces and recognize that this is an issue that's affecting their cul-de-sac, their neighborhood, um, their son or daughter, it changes the perspective immensely. And the more we can do that, the quicker we'll be able to deal with this and the quicker we'll be have a real healthy way to deal with addiction in this state. Well, thank you again, Nan. Thanks, Greg. This has been the first in a series of podcasts in the run-up to the gubernatorial election in Ohio. Joining us today to discuss her plans to address the opioid epidemic, if elected governor, has been Nan Whaley, mayor of Dayton and Democratic candidate for governor here in Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.